Antic Heart, Chapter 16 when I leave, clinging on to me as if I'm leaving forever. Promise you'll come back, she whispers. Don't leave me alone. I laugh. I'm always going to come back, mother. You can't get rid of me. I leave her waving in the doorway and walk to Edward Hyde's office. Girl follows me eagerly, bouncing from paw to paw, a real spring in his step. I arrive early. But Hyde is already waiting for me with Lucy Carlyle. He doesn't spend many words on us, but leads us out into the courtyard. Jean is waiting there for us with three horses. All of our baggage has been loaded onto a pack mule. He helps Lucy up onto her horse and leaves me to jump up myself. I remind myself that a man would not expect such help unless he was infirm. Lucy keeps the conversation going through the day. Jeanne makes no response, while I answer briefly and without enthusiasm. She tells us about every moment she has spent with the king. I have never met a man so courteous and yet so very hard to resist. She blushes, looking at Jeanne, who takes no notice of her. He rides, looking sternly ahead. I guess he knows that Lucy's burbling is meant for me. He is old beyond his years, Lucy affirms. He has a heavy load on his shoulders. To lose one's father in such a tragic way and then to have all of the responsibilities of kingship thrust upon him. It is a wonder he is so cheerful. Yes, indeed. I spur my horse onto a trot, which means Lucy has to do the same to catch up. Thankfully, she is quiet for a while. The Queen has aged, she announces, as we pull up to stop for lunch. You would not believe what a beauty she was, like a tiny, sparkling angel. She was the star at the centre of her husband's court. No, madam, I say sarcastically. It was you, the Countess of Carlisle, who was the star of the court, and well you know it. Jeanne looks down. I swear I can see a smile curving his lips. He pulls up the horse and dismounts, going over to Lucy to help her. She manages the ungainly move gracefully and turns to watch me slide off my mount. We were different stars, she says quietly. I was a comet, showy and bright. But the queen was the pole star for her husband and all who were good. I can tell she means it, 
Her love for the Queen is very real. My lady, let us go and eat, Jeanne suggests, and so we make our way into the inn, Lucy and I avoiding each other's eyes. We make good time that day and reach Beauvais in time to stay overnight. Again, I sleep with Jeanne and Lucy has a room to herself. I fume at the frustration of it. There is nowhere she and I can be alone until we reach Calais and change identities. Until then, I am her employee and I can only exchange pleasantries with her. All I want to do is to find out what happened during her time with the king and whether she still has feelings for me. Instead, I get court gossip, complaints about her sister and brother-in-law and a few banal comments about the colder than normal autumn. She senses my frustration and it makes her tense and so sillier than normal. If Jean only knew what an impediment he was to us both. But even if he did know, he does not care, and nor, I suspect, does Lucy. Thankfully, there is only one day left of Jean's company. He leaves us at Calais on the evening of the following day. A room has been booked for me and Lucy at a local inn. She goes up to the room, leaving me drinking beer downstairs. Half an hour later, I go upstairs, look both ways and quietly make my way into Lucy's room. She is sitting on the bed, smoking a pipe. I thought you'd never come. Hurry up and get changed and then we can send out for some food. I stride over to the bed and stand there, my hands on my hips. No, Lucy, I will not. First, you must tell me what you've been doing at court. What has happened with the king? And what about me? Do you still have any feeling for me at all? Lucy looks at me and sighs. Of course I have feeling for you, Henriette. That is, I do when you are not being tiresome. You know the kind of person I am. I have always been honest with you. Yes, I had a whirlwind few days with the king and it was wonderful. But I do not love him. Do you know why? Because it will never happen again. He will take his pleasures, but he will do nothing that damages his prospects of being king. He will have mistresses discreetly, but it would never be discreet with me, and the court would always talk. They would say I am old enough to be his mother, that I have a withered womb, and that I am a loose woman. They would drag up anything to bring me down, and he knows that. So, with a smile and a kiss, he will bid me goodbye and Godspeed, and tell me that his mother will be pleased to see me again when they return to London. I think on this. Although I don't like to admit it, I believe she is telling the truth. I let my shoulders slump and sit down on the bed. I feel her patting me gently. Henriette, don't be angry. We have several days together 
as Araminta and Celia. Please, my Celia, let us be happy and enjoy our time together. She puffs at her pipe, blowing the smoke out in my direction. It smells fragrant and warm. I turn to her and wrinkle my nose. Come on, Henriette, change your clothes. Then we can go out. I have a lace collar you can borrow. Will it be as it was before? I desperately want her to say yes, but I don't know if I can bear to go through that intimacy, knowing what I know now. Henriette, you always want a plan. Give up the planning for a few days. Let us live together and see what time brings. I dress and we both go down to find some food. We make the most of our last night in France, drinking good wine and eating Normandy cheese. As the wine takes effect, we start to feel more relaxed and the atmosphere warms. We stagger back to the inn, tipsy and happy, climb the stairs and fall into bed. I wake at dawn, feeling headachy and tired. Lucy looks dewy and fresh, her hair spread out on the pillow. I curse her for her ability to always bounce back. Just then she stirs and smiles at me and my heart melts. She sits straight up. Henriette, don't sit around. We need to embark before midday. We hurry downstairs, followed by an anxious girl who suspects he may be left behind again. I reassure him, caressing his curly coat as Lucy pays the innkeeper. Then we walk to the docks, followed by a girl and a man leading a mule loaded with our luggage. As we board the ship, we become Araminta and Celia, fussing over our boxes as the sailors load them. We have a small cabin, which we retire to once the ship is on its way. It is warm with the sunshine and rocks gently, cradling us as we lie on the bed. Girl, relieved to be with me, curls up in a corner and falls asleep. Slowly, very slowly, I turn to Lucy and start stroking her hair. She sighs deeply and stretches out like a cat. I move my hand, turn her over and kiss the nape of her neck. She rolls back and reaches up to me, kissing me with a hunger that surprises me. I kiss her back, pushing my tongue into her mouth. She tastes of sweet tobacco. I want to taste her, every part of her. I raise myself a little and I look into her eyes. Yes? She blinks and then looks me full in the face. Yes. And so our physical relationship resumes. We spend hours in our cabin as the ship slowly makes its way towards Dover. We can give each other everything in this in-between space. She is no longer the Countess of Carlisle. I am no longer a young man. In this space between England and France, we have no loyalties except to each other. There is no king, 
no parliament, no lover, no mother. Even girl escapes from the cabin and finds that the sailors give him treats. We don't try to get him back. I wonder at Lucy's body that is so smooth and white, from the small rounded breasts to the slim waist and the swelling hips. It seems like she knows some kind of spell that will bring eternal youth. I know that she has borne no living children and indeed has experienced far fewer pregnancies than most aristocratic women. But she's had her heart broken many times, has lost lovers and a husband. She has faced the wrath of governments and has been imprisoned in the tower. But she is irrepressible. Lucy is just Lucy, and she will always face life with enthusiasm, joy and cheek. How can anyone resist her? I realise that I love her, but also that I must accept her as she is, as eager as a puppy for every new experience, every new person in her life. I cannot spoil the time by questioning her, and so we do not talk of the future. Instead, I tell her how beautiful she is, and she tells me I am extraordinary. She loves my flat chest and my litheness that blossoms into the softness of my belly. She thinks it is funny that I can walk with men or women, and she begs me for stories of my adventures. In return, she gives me a rundown on each of her lovers, opening my eyes to the foibles of powerful men. She is entertaining company. There are crosswinds that slow the journey. We stay in our cabin for two days, existing only for the moment. On the morning of the third day, we dock at Dover. It is a cold, wet day. Wrapped in our cloaks, we struggle ashore and bargain with a local man to move our luggage to a nearby inn. We will not stay with Thomas Lewis. He does not know that we are travelling in incognito. The fewer people that know our secret, the better. We go instead to the inn and arrange there for two horses and a man with a pack mule for the luggage to pick us up the following day. Girl scampers about, sniffing the air, excited by the new surroundings. He's quite large now, a cheeky young dog who people fall in love with. How would he have coped with the battles that his grandfather had seen? I thank God that he's seen no death to sour him. Over the next couple of days, we make our way to Penshurst. I am constantly tired, riding all day, talking and loving all night. I am desperate for sleep, but I know these nights may be my last chance to be alone with Lucy. We are Araminta and Celia, a sensibly drab couple of ladies who attract no attention. Lucy has wrapped a scarf around the bottom half of her face, telling people that she has toothache and cannot bear the cold. I am not known in these parts, but I keep my head down just in case. But our journey is uneventful and there is no trouble on the road. We arrive at Penshurst on a dank, dark day and after stabling our horses, the stable hand is bought off with a tip 
and the story that we have been guising with friends, as the Scots do. I don't think he believes us, but the tip and the promise of another one in a month's time are large enough to keep his mouth shut. Leaving the stables, Lucy leads me to a side door and we hurry inside, girl trotting beside us. We run up the back stairs to Lucy's apartment, go in and lock the door. Lucy lies on the bed, travel-stained, but still amazingly beautiful. She looks at me wickedly. No one knows we are here, Henriette. Shall we wait until dinner time to alert them? She beckons to the bed and I move towards it. Let's take off these miserable clothes. She throws off her dark grey cloak and turns to me to unlace her. My fingers are fumbling as if it was the first time and she curses as I hesitate. Finally, she is free and she turns to do the same service for me. I remember that afternoon so well. It was cold in Lucy's chamber. No fire had been lit for several weeks. So we got into her large bed and I held her in my arms. Girl jumped on the bed and came sniffing and snuffling at us, licking our faces with his large wet tongue. We would have pushed him off, but he also was a source of warmth, and so we let him stay. We are very slow and sleepy this afternoon. We doze, then I move my hand between her legs and bring her to orgasm. She sleeps again while I attend to myself. Just before I finish, she takes over and I feel a cascade of delight running through me. Her fingers have brought me to the edge of heaven and I am so desperately grateful. I try to tell her so, but she shushes me and tells me to sleep. I am distracted by her, but at last I do close my eyes. I am aware of her warmth in my arms and of girl's hot body curled up at my back. I tell myself to remember this moment forever. I drift into unconsciousness. We sleep for three hours until the sun has gone in. The room is dark now with no candles lit and no fire burning. We have to get up and tell the household we have arrived. Reluctantly, I pull my clothes on as Henry. Once I am dressed, Lucy calls out of the door for a servant. We have been at Penshurst for three hours and no one has come to look after us, she scolds the thin servant girl who eventually appears. I nearly interrupt to tell her that we hadn't called for anyone, but then I realise she has a story and a rank to maintain. The girl rushes off to fetch candles and then firewood for the fire. She works hard and eventually gets a small blaze going. Now show Master Nash to his room, the one he had before. Lucy instructs, he will need to get ready for dinner, as do I. The girl gives a half-hearted curtsy and beckons me to follow. My room is also dark and cold, and of course no one has remedied that. I ask the girl to do so, and she grimaces and rushes off downstairs. I do not know whether she's gone to collect candles and firewood, or whether she's decided I'm not important enough to look after 
I venture downstairs to the kitchen and see that she has, in fact, found a basket full of firewood. I'll get tapers after I've got the fire lit, she tells me. Cookies and pleased. She wasn't expecting you. I can manage on bread and cheese, I offer, but the girl shakes her head. Cock would never allow that at Penshurst. A guest having to eat bread and cheese? Be shameful. The girl gets my fire going and at last my draughty room starts to heat up. The flames of the fire and the candles mean I have light to see by. I wash myself using a, a jug and ewer of water that the maid has brought in, put on a clean shirt and my jacket and breeches. I've been told that I'm eating in Lucy's apartment today. The Earl of Leicester and his wife are visiting family, rather fortunately. When I open the door, I see that Lucy has changed into one of her favourite dresses, the one that is butter yellow. She is in her mask again and looks more beautiful than ever. We sit at opposite sides of a small table and the maid brings in venison pasties with a flagon of rich red wine. Girl pesters us for titbits, which we give him, leading him then to jump up for more. But apart from him, we are silent when we eat. And then Lucy wipes her face with a napkin and starts to talk. Henry, we will stay here a few days and then we must go to London to question your Judith Pettigrew about her connections with court. I am not convinced that this is a good idea. I think it would be better if I went on my own, I say. I do not wish to frighten her. Nonsense, Lucy is emphatic. I knew the court of the dead king's time. If she was somehow connected with it, I will recognise her. And if I don't recognise her, my previous knowledge means that I can easily discover whether she is telling the truth. I feel bad for Judith Pettigrew, but then I realise it is us who will be at risk rather than her. Even if she is a spy or has stolen the pendant, we have no power to detain her. But she can easily summon help from the soldiers and get us arrested and thrown into the tower. I don't think that Lucy should risk this. And tell her so. I am not afraid of the tower. I am an honoured guest there, she declares. I have my preferred warders and they treat me well. I smile, wondering if there is anyone anywhere that Lucy cannot twist around her little finger. I reluctantly agree to the idea that we should go together. We will need a few days, Lucy says. I must see my sister when she returns and allow my face to be seen around the estate. I will say I have had an ague. I jump in to correct her. No, Lucy, you were meant to be visiting your beloved old servant. That is the story. She smiles broadly. Indeed I was, Henry. Thank you for reminding me. What would I do without you? I reflect that she would do much as she always has, always managing to convince someone to help her. To her dying day, she would always have a coterie of willing admirers. The Earl and Countess of Leicester returned the following day, causing the servants to fuss and hurry around the large house 
airing rooms, strewing fresh rushes in the hall. Beds are made up with fresh sheets and tapestries hung. In the kitchen, the cooks start roasting wildfowl for the evening. Apple tarts are prepared and cream brought in from the dairy. Flagons of wine are carried up from the cellar, goblets polished. Lucy and I float serenely above all the activity. It is raining outside and we walk up and down the long gallery. Lucy points out the family portraits, telling me about marriages, happy and unhappy. She recounts the affairs, the wars and the family feuds. She is an excellent storyteller and the afternoon passes happily. We meet Robert, the Earl of Leicester, and his wife Dorothy at dinner. Dorothy is pleased to see her sister, but also angry about her absence. So, how is Annie? Did she take many days to die? She inquires icily. You were gone an unconscionable time. Thank God she recovered, Lucy says smoothly. I was every day at her bedside. Then, as she rallied, we brought fruit and eggs to build up her strength. Thank God no one in authority discovered you were absent. Though had they done so, I am sure we could have sent them to Northumberland to find you. Dorothy is suspicious, and rightly so. Yes, of course you could have done that. They would soon find out I was following my conscience. Lucy, did you get some hunting in in Northumberland? The Earl of Leicester is tearing into his fowl, mopping up the gravy with a large hunk of bread. Been a good season up there, I hear. No, brother. I was all the time at Annie's sickbed. I had not time to hunt. Pity, you miss good sport. My friend told me the ground was hard and the weather fine. If only I had had the time to notice it, brother. But you know me. Once I am called in to help, I will dedicate myself to that. Hunting, however enjoyable, must be set aside. I sit quietly towards the end of the table. I am gentry, but not high aristocrats as these are. After we have finished eating, Robert and Lucy both light pipes. Robert offers one to me, but I shake my head. I do wish you hadn't taken up that filthy habit. It stinks the hall out. Dorothy is peevish. Master Nash, I am glad you do not follow in your better's footsteps. I am sure it cannot be natural to breathe in the smoke of burning leaves. Nonsense, wife, it's good for the health. All the doctors in London are recommending it now. There is very little it cannot cure. Chills, constipation, congestion of the, of the lung. Robert tamps down his tobacco, looks at his wife and continues. You might try it, wife. It would help your melancholia. Look at your sister. She uses tobacco and she's as cheerful as a singing bird. Lucy removes her pipe and beams at Dorothy. You can try if you wish, holding the pipe out. No, thank you. I have no need of tobacco. Dorothy wipes around her plate with a piece of bread 
and eats it with relish. But, sister, I do have need of your ideas. I wish to buy some new gowns. Simple gowns, they must be. But you can help me make sure that they are in fashion. Lucy nods enthusiastically. Nothing would give me greater pleasure. I suggest we go to the drapers next week and look at fabrics. I was thinking of going tomorrow. Dorothy frowns at her sister. Sorry, I can't do it until next week. I have letters to write. I have to check on Annie's recovery. Lucy answers apologetically. Dorothy sighs. You are so concerned, she says sarcastically. Very well, we will go next week. Thank you, sister, for your kindness. I shall be extremely busy this week. Henry and I will be closeted together for the next few days to write the letters. The next day we settle to work. Lucy dictates a number of letters and instructs me to visit Dorothy in her parlour to ask her if she wishes to add a letter of her own. Dorothy is sitting beside the fire, sewing. It has always struck me as strange that aristocratic women consider sewing to be an admirable accomplishment. They have no need to sew. They would better give the work to a poor woman like my mother, who would benefit from the money. If I were them, I would never pick up a needle. I would be too busy hunting or singing or dancing the night away. Lucy has never favoured sewing, thank God. Dorothy looks up. What can I do for you, Master Nash? She looks at the pile of letters I have dropped artlessly on the table. I see she's been keeping you busy. I smile and make a small bow. Yes, indeed, Your Grace, she has, and we have more to do. Tell me what you want. I cannot keep you from this important work. She rolls her eyes as she says work. I want nothing, Your Grace. The Countess has asked me if you wish to send any messages of your own to be conveyed alongside hers. She tuts irritably. No, no, I have no need to write. I am leaving tomorrow to take these to a messenger, so if you want to change your mind... I don't want to change my mind. Now leave me be, Master Nash. I leave the parlour and walk rapidly to Lucy's apartment. Our time together has been businesslike over the last two days. While I wish it were different, I cannot force my way into her affections if she doesn't want me. While I write letters of business, Lucy is writing something of her own. It is taking her a long time and I can see that she is using a cipher to do so. I want to look at it but she never leaves me alone in her chamber. I remember the king's suspicion that she might have another gallant to whom she is passing secrets. Who is she writing to, and why the secrecy? She says nothing to me about it, and I realise she doesn't want me to know. Is this a lover lurking in the shadows? I realise that if I am to make good on my promise to the king, I will need to have sight of this letter. We eat in the parlour, pausing from our writing to eat venison pasties that have been sent up from the kitchen. Lucy pours me some wine. So, Henry, 
the plan tomorrow is for us both to leave at dawn before the household has risen. We go out through the side gate, which is not overlooked, and ride hard until we get to London. We'll confront Mistress Pettigrew, hear her story, and then ride back the same night. The story is that you are delivering my letters to the London Post. And as for me, I shall say that I tell my maid tonight that I have a migraine and I'm not to be disturbed. So long as we can get in and out under cover of darkness, no one will know I've been away. I gather up the letters to put into my bag. Shall I take this one too? I gestured carelessly at the manuscript in front of her. No, no, I have not finished this yet. I will bring it tomorrow. She makes to gather the papers up when girl comes in, his tail wagging madly. He jumps up at Lucy and licks her face. Muttering endearments, she puts the letter down on the desk and pets girl, but she's not pleased. This dog should be better behaved, she tells me. He could jump onto a young child or an old lady. She stands up and I stand with her, pulling girl by the collar close to me. Time to sleep now, Henry. We have an early start tomorrow. And take that damn dog with you. I leave with girl at my heels and make my way to my room on the other side of the building. I'm surprised to find that I'm not unhappy. There is no flame of jealousy in my heart, for which I thank God. What I do feel, though, is an intense curiosity about the letter that Lucy has been writing. If it is to a lover, then why hasn't she told me? She's told me many other things about her past and her life, so why not now? And why is she using a cipher? Is that the mark of a double agent? I pace up and down my room. I have to get back to Lucy's parlour tonight to look at the letter that she doesn't want me to share with me. I know that Lucy goes to bed around 11 o'clock. I should leave maybe an hour after that, in case she decides to sit up smoking. Then I can creep along the corridors to her parlour. I hear occasional calls from the maidservants making their way up to bed and the sound of bolts being shot across the side door below my room. At last the noises subside and the house is quiet. Girl is fast asleep on the bed, snoring loudly. I wait another few minutes and then I open my door and creep outside into the dark corridor. I know the house well enough by now to be able to find my way without a candle. I'm not wearing my boots and so I'm able to walk silently along the dark corridor. This most well-maintained of houses has few creaky floorboards. No one hears me, but if I'm stopped, my excuse is that I have left my prayer book in the parlour. Lucy would laugh to hear that. The two of us do not pray when we are together. I push the parlour door open and walk inside, padding to the desk that Lucy was sitting at. I cannot see well in this dark room, but putting my hands out, I can feel that there are a couple of documents on the desk. I cannot read them here, 
Lighting candles could only lead to discovery. So I decided to take the documents back to my room, read them and then put them back before the household is stirring. I arrive back at my room without incident and light a taper from the dying embers of the fire. I fetch a candlestick and hold the taper to its wick. After a moment, I have a reasonable light to read by. I spread the papers on my table and sit down to read. The lettering is clear, written in Lucy's flowing hand. But it is in code. I curse myself. How could I have forgotten about this? Of course, Lucy uses a cipher. Frustrated, I rustle through the many pages of her missive. Then I realised, girl has done me a favour. For the last page in the bundle is the cipher. While patting girl, Lucy must have forgotten to take it away. It takes me a while, but slowly, painstakingly, I start to decipher the document that lies in front of me. Very soon I can see that it is a love letter. It pains me to read Lucy's declarations of everlasting love to an unknown man. Who is he? Is he a supporter of Parliament? Could she really be passing on information to someone on the other side? Maybe he is a cavalier and she is innocent. But no matter who, it is clear that she is in love with another man. This hurts me more than the suspicion of treachery does. Why does she beg him to tell her that she he loves her? Why berate him for his lack of care for her? This is not the Lucy I know, but one who is very much more fragile. She's not casual, not airy. Instead, she's sometimes angry, sometimes sorry. She's very much in love with this man, far more than he is with her. I can almost feel her pain and I can't help but feel sorry for her. Would she spy for this man? I know she would. Would she betray her king? Yes, she would, if it was the price of keeping this man she loved so much. So who is he? I scan the letter looking for a clue, but find none. Then I have an idea. I turn the document over. Scratched on the back are several words. Quickly, I apply the cipher. The words are, Orlando, my love. Orlando! So it is the king who she is in love with. I'd never guessed the depth of her passion for him. She has always given the impression that, that for her love is transitory. But it is clear that this is passion. It's also clear that he has no interest in passion. I remember her saying that he would never take her as his mistress, as she was too old. There'd been a tinge of bitterness in her voice then, which I had barely noticed. But his turning away had wounded her deeply. I see now how vulnerable she is. A woman who has always traded on her beauty, but has not been able to resist time. Her husband is dead. She has no money and no name except for that of a deceiver. As I realise this, I want to take her in my arms and allow her to cry on my shoulder. I'm tempted to go straight to her room, 
but it is the dead of night, and if she wakes to movement in the room, she might raise the alarm. And it is not long now till dawn. I creep back to the parlour and replace the letter and its cipher. I return to my chamber, hiding behind a door to avoid a young maid who is hurrying with coal to make up the fire in the kitchen. She passes and I get to my room. It is too late to sleep. I am struggling to realise the import of what I've just read. Lucy is in love with King Charles. So it doesn't seem possible that she could be prepared to betray him. Unless at some point his carelessness means that she turns against him. But just now, in Paris, she's given every impression that she's very happy. I pull my hands through my hair, wondering how I can ever reach a conclusion on this. Maybe I should confront Lucy. But if she's spying, then that would only act as a warning. We have to go to London this morning to call on Judith Pettigrew. I cannot engage in deep conversations today. So I put all of my doubts to the back of my mind, wash my face and pull on my boots. I eat some bread and cheese that I had taken from the kitchen the night before and finish a half-empty tankard of small ale. The food helps me wake up a little and I go to the stables. A girl follows me, still chewing on the bread I have given him. It is cool outside, but once I've opened the door, I feel the warmth of the animals and the sweet smell of hay. There is one stable hand who sleeps with the animals and he stirs as I enter. I mumble that we have an early journey, but he need not rise. I will saddle the horses.